thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Download the app today. You're listening to Wellness Women Radio with women's health experts, Dr. Ashley Bond, the pregnancy and birthing guru, and the queen of hormone imbalances, the period whisperer herself, Dr. Andrea Huddleston. They're raising the bar for women's health by bringing you the most up-to-date health and wellness information to live your best life. Now, on to the show. This episode of Wellness Women Radio is very proudly brought to you by Dinner Twist. Dr. Ashley and I want to let you in on a little secret of how we maintain our healthy whole foods lifestyle with very little time. And one of those ways is actually with Dinner Twist. So they plan, they shop, they deliver everything to our door to take all of the guesswork out of having really healthy meals for dinner each night. I love Dinner Twist because they are a locally family-owned business here in Perth in Western Australia, and all of their produce is locally sourced and seasonal. So they are really invested in all of their suppliers as well, which is absolutely amazing. Everything is so fresh. Ashley and I both get the wholesome box, which is naturally gluten and dairy-free as well, and is very consistent with a paleo-type lifestyle as well. So it's you know completely consistent with you know, the way that we want to eat and want to feed our loved ones too. This is also how I trick Dean into thinking that I can actually cook. So seriously, if I can do it, everybody can trust me. And their recipes are so delicious. They also have other options apart from the wholesome box. So they have a family box for bigger size families an express box. If you're really short on time, as well as a vegan box too. Now we would love to give you the opportunity for you to actually try dinner twist and realize how healthy, how delicious and how fresh it is but also how much easier this is going to make life as well. So we have a special promo code for you, and that is going to give you $35 off your first box. And that is WWR for Wellness Women Radio. Um, So we would love you to uh, try for yourself. Don't take my word for it, but let me know what you think. Without further ado, ladies, onto the show. Oh, hello and welcome back, wonderful listeners. Um, I know you're not used to hearing my voice um, to intro you all into our shows, but I'm flying solo today. Well, not entirely. I do have a very amazing guest that I can't wait to introduce you to, which sort of uh, is supposed to be a bit of a reintroduction, um, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Um, But first, welcome to and welcome back to Wellness Women Radio. I'm Dr. Andrea Huddleston, and today I'm joined by the amazing Catherine Maslin. So Catherine is a clinical naturopath. She's a nutritionist, an author, a speaker, and she's also the host of the Shift podcast um, and the creator of Shift Clinics as well. Now, I would strongly urge you all to please go and jump on and search for the Shift podcast on whatever medium you're listening to this on um, because the series um, that she has on there so far are so relevant and such amazing women's health topics that also, you know, feature... um, Um, yours truly, but that's not why you should listen to them. (laughs) They are actually brilliant episodes that um, really uh, showcase some incredible experts in the field. So I would um, encourage you to jump onto that. But Catherine is also an author um, of the best-selling book, Get Well, Stay Well, and is a regular voice in the media as well. Um, She is the leader or is a leader in the natural health industry um, and her shift clinic has helped tens of thousands of patients, I'm sure of it. And she also speaks internationally on health and wellness. Um, So Catherine, welcome back to Wellness Women Radio. I'm saying welcome back because the first episode that we recorded with you, gosh, um, like 18 months ago now, um, which was such gold, somehow got lost into, you know, the the ether, never to be recovered again. But Catherine, welcome back. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Obviously, the topic that we're going to cover today is different to what we initially um, recorded on. So this must be because this is the real information that patients needed from you or from that our listeners needed from you, Catherine. Um, And I want to jump into that in a second. But before we do that, um, I... I think that you and I definitely really on the same bandwidth, um, Catherine, whenever we've chatted and whenever we've recorded podcasts, I think we've really clicked and you have such an interesting history. 
and you're such a brilliant sort of go-getter and you've got this amazing sort of vivacious energy and and I really, really love that about you. But I know that this hasn't um, just come from nowhere. And so I know that our listeners would really love to hear just a little bit more about you and your past and how you got to be this leader in, you know, the health profession and everything else, because it's a bit colorful. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. Happy to share. So I guess my story began in Melbourne. So I was born in the Western suburbs of Melbourne and I lived there with my three siblings and my mother and father. And unfortunately, my dad was a, quite a violent man. So he was an alcoholic and a lot of my childhood was very tumultuous and quite fearful, quite traumatic. And I guess I took the predictable trajectory. And by the time I was kind of 13, 14, I was wagging school a lot, smoking marijuana, hanging out with my friends, hanging out with the bad kids of which I was quite proud to be one of them at the time and one thing led to another and by the time I was 15 years old I was homeless addicted to heroin and living on the streets of Melbourne City and this kind of went on for about six months of my life now one day the Salvation Army plucked me off the streets and they put me in a bit of like a halfway house for girls troubled girls And uh, I got a phone call there one day and it was from my best friend and she said, Kat, do you want to move to North Queensland? Mum's taking me to Daintree. So her mother has also identified that she's in trouble, et cetera, and said, I'm taking you up to the Daintree rainforest and we're getting you out of here. But incredibly kindly, she offered me to go with them. So I called my mother, who was still my legal guardian at that point. I was 15 years old and she didn't want to let me go. But after much to and froing and conversations with friends, she decided to let me go. So I jumped on a Greyhound bus, which is how people used to get around before aeroplanes became cheaper. And <laughs> And I took all of my belongings, which was just one backpack, and I went up to the Daintree rainforest. And it was there that I began my journey of healing. And in the Daintree, I lived in a small house that didn't have windows or electricity. I got a job at a local cafe and I began to build a new life there. So being in the forest and being out of that environment was really the first opportunity that I had for healing. And I think environment is a really important thing when we look at that. But the second one was that I met a family there and the family, we, I became very close to them. Uh, the Robbie Penn was kind of the um, male father figure of the family and he was a pom. He used to wear a big crocodile tooth around his neck and he considered himself a bit of a pirate, had a little boat. We used to go fishing and, and snorkeling all the time. But the mother of the family, Jenny, was this really beautiful, gentle soul. And Jenny had a condition called lupus, which is a systemic autoimmune disease. And it was the first time in my life that I'd never that I'd ever really experienced anyone that was truly unwell. And Jenny was very sick. She had a medicine cabinet on her bench, and the sicker that she got, the bigger it grew, but she never really got any better. And what happened was I stumbled across a book on herbal medicine and I read about herbal medicine and all of these herbs and the wonderful things that they can do for you. And I just fell in love with them. And I thought to myself, why doesn't everyone know about this? And like a lot of people in the healing industry, Jenny was on my mind. I'm like, I need to go and study this so I can help her, right? So she was like a second mother to me and I cared about her a lot. So what I did was I packed up my mini moak, which was my first car, full of all my belongings, and I drove down to the Gold Coast and um, I began studying a Bachelor of Western Herbal Medicine and Naturopathy. Now, one day I was standing out the front of the university smoking a cigarette right? (laughs) (laughs) What a paradox. I don't think you're allowed to do that while you're studying. (laughs) Naturopathy. I know, right? But we've all got a story. And um, I like to tell that because I think sometimes people think that you just start off in this kind of pinnacle of perfection of health, which I still don't have, by the way, (laughs) oversell it. Anyway, I was sitting there having a cigarette and my phone rang and it was Bonnie's uh, daughter. Oh, sorry. It was Jenny's daughter, Bonnie. And I answered the phone. I said, Hey, Bonnie, what's up? And she said, cat mum's passed away and uh, I'd never really lost anyone that I was close to before and uh, Jenny was only 46 years old and it really shook me but it also really strengthened my resolve to go we need to do better and a little piece of Jenny carries with me in everything that I do so I guess for me personally my healing journey began in the Daintree but it wasn't until I started studying naturopathy that I really started getting to ex- exposed to a lot of things that would support healing so I've done a lot of work on uh, my trauma 
energy work, lots of fasting, plant medicine (laughs) a little bit, lots of different things along the journey that have allowed me to be exposed to these different ways of healing. So I think um, now I find myself in this unique position where I obviously graduated my naturopathy and I'm here now, went on to write a book and do different things and more recently have got into more kind of coaching, et cetera. But my real unique superpower is really understanding how do people navigate the journey of wellness? Yes, I'm a good clinician, but I'm more interested in why do some people make the shift while others do not? And that has a lot to do with their inner workings, their mindset, how they navigate things and uh, at what level of support they have. So I do believe that our healthcare system is the opposite of what people need for long-term health, healing and wellness, which I'm sure you do as well, doing what you do. So our mission at the shift clinic is to change the face of healthcare um, from reactive to proactive to really having what you and I do as an availability for people in the healthcare system under Medicare or something similarly. And that's my mission in this lifetime. Oh, Catherine, that's amazing. That gives me goosebumps because I love seeing women who are so resourced have that sort of purpose and that mission. And the biggest difference that I see in people who don't have uh, health, for lack of a sort of a better term, is that that is stopping them from doing those things. It's stopping them from having that purpose because your health does have that greater purpose. Mm-hmm. And going through all the you know trials and tribulations that you did, being able to be so resilient being as a not everybody is able to survive on the streets for six months and then move away and then you know create have that that calling themselves and do all of that by themselves so that resilience in the first place is amazing Mm. but then because you were obviously I expected you put that cigarette out and then realized that um you know your health was so important for you to be able to have this calling right Mm. yeah um and I think that ultimately that's that's the big picture Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's so important and so worth investing in it as well. Yep. One of my friends, she calls me the renegade, like the health renegade. Oh, I love that. And I do. I think would wear that badge of honor with pride. There yeah. is such an ingrained dysfunction and toxicity in our healthcare system that we do need people that are going to push forward and demand that things are better and ultimately it will come from people demanding things be better but this is why mediums like this is so important and I do do a lot of speaking and podcasting advocacy because we do need to shift this at a massive consciousness because if you look at the rates of chronic disease and where we're going and infertility even at a basic level it's not looking good for the survival of our species. Oh my goodness. You're so right. Like this is the biggest, um, for example, with infertility at the moment, our stats were absolutely in in a fertility crisis. Mm -hmm. It's the biggest social change that's ever happened in human history. And Mm -hmm. it's happening so fast. You know, sperm counts have halved in the last 40 years. Imagine what it's going to be like in 40 years time. Like we're not going to need contraception because, you know, like it's, uh, but if you and I have anything to do with it, we'll. That's right. <laughs> it's, that's not going to happen. It's not going to be all doom and gloom. Um, but today we're going to talk about something that surprisingly we haven't really covered on the podcast much at all, and that is pain and inflammation. But it's so relevant to everybody and especially, you know, pretty much all women because at some point throughout their, um, you know, reproductive journey, they're going to be experiencing period pain. And even though I don't think that any sort of period pain is normal, you know, there's only a very small percentage of women who actually don't experience pain with their periods, for example, Mm -hmm. or don't experience things like migraines that come with that. Um, as well. So, um, Catherine, I think that that's probably a really good place for us to start, mm. um, just sort of unpacking pain, inflammation and everything else. Yeah. Um, and I'm really interested on your take on this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think when you guys reached out and were like, well, what do you want to talk about this time? <laughs> And I was like, oh, what could it be? And I was seeing a lot of this in my clinic at the moment, a lot of women with these chronic pain syndromes, but also we were getting really fantastic results. And I think I really wanted to make people aware that there is actually help and the technology that we have around therapies and around what we know about pain and pain syndromes and all different levels is a lot more advanced than it was 10 years ago. So Mm. when I look at pain and I try and describe pain and inflammation, We'll talk about inflammation to start with. You can have pain without inflammation. It's not as common, but it can definitely happen. 
But the way I describe it to my patients is if you burn yourself, so let's say you're cooking some food, you burn yourself on the stove, what happens to that area? It's going to get red, it's going to get swollen, it's going to get, you know, there's going to be a level of activity there that you can feel that's happening. And what the body's doing is it's recruiting all of these different cells and physiological processes in the process of healing. And inflammation is part of the process of healing. It's a very important thing for the body short term. But what happens in chronic inflammation or when we have this this inflammation-driving disease is that we have similar kind of cells that might be there to normally help us, but they sit at levels that are too high chronically and we end up with this, this inflammatory-type syndrome. So we may have this underriding chronic inflammation that we might not feel 24 hours a day, but then something happens that kicks off and then that inflammation really starts driving it. And for women, one of the biggest causes, as you say, are around our periods when that happens. Mm -hmm. And for so long, we were told that period pain was just part of being a woman. That's definitely changing and shifting now, but I still get patients that see their doctors that get gaslighted about their pain now in 2023, you know, and make there's just some really negligent bad bedside manner type of practices still going on, which I'm sure that you see in your practice a lot with women's health too. So what we need to understand for women is that no pain is normal unless Mm -hmm. it is the pain of injury, right? The body is injured. It's saying I am in pain and it's trying to heal and it's trying to protect you. So if you, you know, really hurt your foot, you don't want to have a lack of inflammation because you're just going to keep walking on it and make the damage worse and worse. But when it comes to period pain, it's definitely telling us something's wrong, but we need to then become detectives and advocate for ourselves sometimes to get to the bottom of it, right? So the big ones when we talk about period pain are definitely going to be things like your endometriosis, adenomyosis, which again, we talked about that rise of chronic disease. These are steeply on the rise for women. We can talk about some of the reasons why that might be occurring. Mm -hmm. Um, But also things like polyps or fibroids can lead to pain. And sometimes we can have non-pathological pain. So it might not necessarily mean that the tissues and structure are problematic, but we might have a prostaglandin imbalance, which is the, you know, natural kind of chemicals that we have that stop these type of things from happening and sometimes it might be as simple as there's inflammation there and we get we end up getting cramping and discomfort because the process of menstruation is a little bit different to all the other physiological things that happen in the body right yeah absolutely we need to be aware as women that these kind of pain inflammation syndromes are not normal can be helped but we need to find out what the root cause of them is is the first step um, Catherine, I want to share a little patient story with you recently um, that sort of came to mind when you were talking about um, that medical gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I recently had a consult with a 23-year-old woman um, who has endometriosis um, and she's had multiple laparoscopic surgeries. Um, they've sort of poked and prodded her quite a lot, um, removed um, her appendix uh, for um, I think just to remove a, a possible site of pain, not that she had acute appendicitis or anything like that. And that was um, driven by the gynecological surgeon at the time. So he was the one who was advocating for the multiple surgeries and she's just had her ovaries removed. Mm. Like She's just essentially been put into extremely early, um, you know, surgical menopause because she's had so many surgeries and has been so medically mismanaged and now essentially being um, gaslit into being told that she's this is last resort stuff. There's nothing else that she can do. Um, she's always responded horrifically to any sort of synthetic hormones and now she's going to be on hormone replacement therapy for the rest of her life. Mm. Um, it's just such a broken system yeah. and it blows my mind. Like I just cannot understand how a male, uh, you know, and this is, this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? Mm. This is one of so many of these cases that sort of just snowball that we see, but a male gynecologist who wasn't even an endometriosis specialist can tell a 23 year old woman that she needs to have her ovaries removed. Like that Mm. is just unconscionable. Like I, anyway. (laughs) God, we could, we could literally tell stories all day. And every time that I do a a story on TikTok or Instagram about this type of thing, because I'll share the stories, I get dozens, if not hundreds of comments of women sharing exactly the same thing. You know, like it's, uh, it's really, and people need to be very aware that the majority of doctors do not understand female 
physiology when it comes to yes. the reproductive system. They really do not. They're ordering tests at the wrong time. They don't understand the ebb and flow of the menstrual cycle. It's it's very reductionistic. And like while we would like to think that gynecologists would be experts in these areas, a lot of them really don't understand these nuances and what it means. And mm. we get these sweeping statements of women going and seeing um, a doctor and they're in their early 20s saying, you won't be able to have kids easily, you're going to need IVF, which mm. is not fact. Um, and <laughs> implanting these belief systems in young women that are very, very harmful long-term. You know, uh, and the other one that I see happening a bit is um, women that need pain relief, being shamed for it, being denied it, being treated yeah. really poorly in hospital when they have pain related to their menstrual cycle, um, which is a whole other topic again, isn't it? But it is something that you need to be aware of. If this is happening, it's not just you. Um, mm. and uh, don't be shy in reporting a doctor that you feel like hasn't treated you properly as well. And, and I think yeah. that people don't know that this is available to them because they have a duty of care to not harm you. And when you are getting psychological harm from the way that they are diagnosing you, treating you, not listening to you, um, you do need to go and seek a second opinion. Absolutely. Especially before doing something that is just so life altering. Um, you know, it, it just, it's just heartbreaking. Um, but anyway, this is also part of the fire of why we, um, why we do what we do, Catherine. So I want to, um, sort of ask you what your opinion is or take on um, sort of the pain receptivity in our system. So what happens when, this, when we're in these chronic or even acute pain states and how the body shifts and reacts to that and how we will change um, what we do and how the body changes when it's learning to deal with that pain? Yeah. And this is really interesting and really, really fascinates me because we have – pain that is caused by a reason okay so I have endometriosis when I am menstruating that tissue is active with the hormones and what's going on and mm. I have stuff going on that's going to cause inflammation um, but what we know from research is that you can have a tiny amount of endo and horrific pain and mm -hmm. you can be riddled with endo and have no pain and the only reason we know this is people will be going through a fertility journey they don't have any pain but they're like let's go in and have a look because it's not happening and they'll have significant moderate to severe endometriosis so how is that happening right this mm -hmm. really does make us think outside of the box because it's like what is the role of the physiology so is the body learning pain and these pain type behaviors what component of it is psychological and what component of it i think is more of a kind of esoteric spiritual where the body is holding on to different pain and it's having that experience and with what we do at shift we're looking at all of it what mm. are all the different parts of it when i was researching for season two of the shift i started looking for evidence on endometriosis, women's health, that type of pain and history of abuse. Because at the shift clinic, we see this all the time and we have an emotional wellness team with hypnotherapists, kinesiology and other healers. And we're always discussing it, looking at their history. And it's so common. So to us, it's common knowledge. But I wonder if there's any research. There's heaps of research that yeah. actually links um, physical trauma. The more severe the trauma um, when it comes to sexual trauma, but not just, but sexual trauma specifically, the more incidents a woman will have endometriosis and the higher incidence of her pain will be higher. Okay, so how does that happen, right? You could think from a physiological perspective, you know, is there locking or guarding because they, they're feeling physiologically impacted? But I do think it's a lot more than that. Why is it impacting that particular area of the body, which is all about our sexuality, which is all about our sense of power? It's, it's a very interesting thing to have a look at. The other one is trying to teach the body that it is safe and uh, really, and this is why things like hypnotherapy, et cetera, can be really good for helping people to mentally turn down their own pain, right? So mm -hmm. what focuses on gets amplified. So it's almost like for a lot of my patients when they're getting these monthly cyclical periods of pain, as soon as the first signs of things come in, they go into the pain, they're expecting that pain. Yeah, so they're yeah. kind of sitting there and then, and then with that comes guarding, et cetera. We do a lot of work with physios, pelvic physios that are sp mm -hmm. specialists for women 
women. And if you have pelvic pain and you haven't seen someone like this, I would recommend trying to find one. You don't hear about them a lot. It's not something often your doctor would be like, I think you should see a pelvic specialist physio. But for things like endometriosis and pelvic stuff, there can be a lot of guarding and rigidity and uh, issues with the ligaments and tendons from that pain and inflammation that can actually be learnt to let go over time and can significantly impact pain. So we want to be thinking about which part of it is learned, which part of it is physiological, which part of it is emotional. What are we what are we holding on to here and how do we help to shift that? Which is a bit of a paradigm shift to kind of the medical model, which is like you're in pain, take some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or naprogesic or something like that. Okay. So we want to really be thinking about what are the different root causes of that. For us, from a physiological perspective, when we're looking at treatment, yes, we want to use treatment while people are in pain, but we're treating them all month round. You know, if I'm treating someone for endometriosis, for example, it's an inflammatory condition. We're wanting to be getting inflammation down the whole time, not just while yeah. that, that person is menstruating. And what we're wanting to look yeah. for is changes in amount of pain, changes in days of pain, changes in just quality of life and how the person can deal with that pain as well. And especially when it comes to something like endo, it they are usually not just in pain with their period. Mm. They've usually got those tendencies towards the chronic sort of pelvic pain. Um, more often than not, endometriosis patients will say things like, I maybe get one good week a month yep. um, when mm. they have that sort of shift in their hormones in that like early follicular phase um, mm. or sort of once their period has finished, so that mid sort of follicular phase before they get to ovulation and then usually everything's starting to cascade again. Yeah, um, Catherine, I think it was um, – I think it was Dr. Christian Northrup who um, was sort of saying that the uterus for a woman is in energy medicine is like a woman's second heart mm-hmm. and that's where she holds all of the pain that she's experienced mm-hmm. through her lifetime, especially related to men. Mm-hmm. And I always just come back to that when like I do see patients with things like chronic pelvic pain or endo um, because usually the severity of the endometriosis, particularly with things like deep infiltrating endometriosis, like that Mm -hmm. particular phenotype, um, is usually um, there's a correlation with that early life trauma um, for whatever sort of that might have been or or some sort of early life stresses. And I also see a stronger correlation with um, more severe endometriosis with retroverted uteruses as well. And that degree of flexion um, sort of posteriorly towards the sacrum is an independent risk factor for that period pain in the first place. And usually that retroversion is because of some sort of trauma as well. So it's just, it's so interesting. Um, There's also new research that's come out around um, the vagal nerve and its um, relationship to the um, infiltration of endometriosis as well Mm. and how um, just doing, you know, essentially regulating vagal function. Mm. So essentially calming the nervous system, which is obviously stuff that we do every single day. So that, that, um, calming of the nervous system helps to decrease the spread of endometriosis, which I just think is amazing. So there's so mm. many layers here yeah. that I think get missed when you're looking at um, something like endoperiod period pain in a very linear sort of fashion that, oh, you have pain, you need pain relief. But yeah. what about the actual, you know, all of those root causes? Yeah. So, yeah, it's so interesting. I think you're right. And in, with, in, with pain in general, it is, it's very reductionalistic. I hurt here, how do I stop hurting? Um, and yeah. it is, it's definitely with endo period pain, there's massive links with stress. I just had a patient of mine recently that quit her job and her pain went down like 30%. Yep. yep. <laughs> and that is, it's just so uncanny and it happens too often for it to be coincidence. I think that we're starting to have a better appreciation of the all the other factors that affect our health Mm -hmm. and I think that if we always think of pain as this warning sign the body is obviously trying to tell you something and probably has been for a long time but we tend to ignore the little whispers first um and because that's just you know what what we're so used to doing we don't normally take action until we kind of get that big sledgehammer 
<laughs> yeah. of, um, you know, of some sort of pain or dysfunction that's happening and, and often only then will we go, okay, mm. we need to do something about this. So yeah. um, paying attention to those sort of uh, little whispers of our body I think is so critical. Um, Catherine, what sort of approach do you take to reducing the pain, reducing the inflammation? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, if it was something like that chronic pelvic pain that we were talking about, what sort of things do you do yeah. for that? So what we have available to us now are these medicines which are from nature but also altered a little bit so that they have a bit more of a powerful action in the body. And there's a few things that I would use in combination depending on what's going on for the woman. But curcuma I think is one of the the biggest ones and one of our biggest gifts that we have. And we Mm -hmm. now have curcuma that's, you know, up to 40 times more absorbable than standard turmeric, which means we can get these really high levels in. And I'm using that a lot for pelvic pain, but also neuroinflammation. So the types that we have, if you get the right one, it can actually cross the blood-brain barrier and support that as well, which is really cool. Um, There's other herbs as well. There's things like boswellia. Again, I would be looking for that in the phytosomal extract. Um, Mm -hmm. I would be looking at we're using these specific kind of fish oil supplements that work on cycles of chronic inflammation and cutting that off. And then definitely we would be looking at the other stuff, supporting nervous system, keeping cortisol low, making sure that you're sleeping properly. So while we sleep, we have more tissue restoration and cleanup than while we're awake. So if we're have insomnia, we're staying up late, we're cutting into that valuable sleep, it means we're not going to get that deep restoration that we need to heal and reduce things. Also at a really basic level, coffee and alcohol, too much of that will increase your pelvic pain. So we know that gluten Mm. can increase pelvic pain. So we know that particularly with endo, we know that women who have endo that give up gluten have reductions in their pain. So we take this kind of multifaceted approach where we're looking at using very, very high strength botanicals and nutritional compounds. We're adjusting the diet. We're looking at reducing stress and supporting things through lifestyle, but also through herbal medicine to be able to allow that body to heal and regulate the best that it can. And then, of course, in our clinic, we are looking at that trauma component and we do have an emotional wellness team that's looking at, okay, what needs to be there? The way that we look at things is looking at the landscape of your entire health. What are all the parts that make you you that have led you to feel exactly as you're feeling today? And then once we know the entire landscape, and that might include looking at some bloods and physiology and hormonal tests, as well as your signs, symptoms, history, then we can decide what to do. But the other important thing to understand is that in the timeline of your life, anything that's happened from even pre-birth up until now that hasn't been resolved has the ability to impact as you're feeling now. So we would look at things like childhood trauma. We would look at things like pregnancies, definitely, pregnancies, kids, major stresses in your life, major traumas, major infections, anything that's going to impact gut health and look at the trajectory of your life and understand, okay, well, based on all of that, what's likely to be here now? What do we need to heal? What do we need to deal with? So it's not complicated, but there's a complexity about it. Right? If you know where to look and know what the landscape is, it's not actually super difficult to help these women. It's just about having that regularity and also having the support to go to the end destination, which a lot of people don't. They kind of have endo, they'll order a random hormone supplement online or you know, take a few bit <laughs> yeah. of curcuma and then nothing really happens. They're like, oh, well, herbal medicine didn't work for me. That's not really how it works. Yeah, it, it does require, especially with things like endo, it does require a bit of an expert touch to get to all those different places and to navigate you through it. Absolutely. Um, I think endometriosis absolutely needs um, the support of someone who really knows what they're doing Mm. with something like that. Um, And I think because it's so topical at the moment, everybody is trying to call themselves an endometriosis specialist, Mm. which I think um, is just doing a disservice to women who have already been failed so much by so much of the medical system already. Yeah. And it is a complex thing to treat. So a standard naturopath that hasn't, you know, done the research, had that advanced training, they might get some results, but it can be a bit hit and miss because there's a lot going on in the background and we're learning more every single day. Yeah, absolutely. And I do really think that it needs to be multifaceted Mm. as well. Um, Catherine, what do you find um, are the best tools to help women with stress? Mm. So because obviously we know that that's such an important component to, you know, just the overall hormonal balance or just helping to reduce that sort of inflammatory um, fire. Um, What kind of things have you found to be um, the best tools? Yeah. So stress is a massive one. And for every 
every single patient that we've helped. You know, I think we're up to about yeah. 15,000 people. Stress has been a component of it. And uh, we live in a world that is not conducive to having a nice, calm, parasympathetic driven nervous system. We do yeah. too much. It's too overstimulating. We're, we're not really built for what's going on for us right now. And we want to do a lot. And I don't want people to not do a lot. Um, usually I definitely push the limits of what I'm capable of. And, uh, but there's tools that we can use to help with that. I think one of the biggest things is creating space in your life. Now, I actually did a post about this this morning, I think on Instagram, so it's weird, but we want to create space in our life. So what we would look at on a daily level, how do we create space? We would Mm. look at you need, let's say 10 minutes, 10 minutes a day where you're not doing anything, right? You can meditate, but you don't have to. You can just sit and breathe. You can just look out at the trees. You can close your eyes and listen to some music, but it's just time for you to just be in your body without doing Mm -hmm. anything. Now, I want you to imagine a time when we were kids, probably you and I, um, where people would line up at the bank when people used to be able to go to the bank, uh, you would line up at the bank and uh, what would you do? You would wait. Yeah. You just wait. You would. You didn't get a book out of your pocket. You weren't on your iPhone. Like you would just wait and, and chill and you might look around but you're just sitting there. And we had all of these moments of space in our life where we would mm-hmm. just be in this waiting stage, right? And it, what it provided was just a little bit of space for us to just be. Likewise mm-hmm. with TV. So people definitely used to watch TV but once the program was over, the program was over and it wasn't on until next week. So we're not doing the same where we're like we're going from one show to another to another or binge watching a season that never used to be a reality for us we never Mm. used to have these phones that every single time we're out for dinner with a friend and they go to the bathroom we get out our phone because we're bored right like every single moment of space is pervased a lot of it with social media and tech so we do need to think about we need to just be okay with being Um, I'm thinking about a story where I was in South America and I was 21 years old And uh, something happened. We had to get a visa for somewhere. And we literally waited, my uh, ex-husband and I, who was my boy, anyway, we waited for um, I think like six hours, right? We were there, just just him and I, just there with a room full of people, just waiting, doing our thing. Like who does that these days? You know, like it's, we just don't have any areas of space. So we need to be thinking about on the daily how we do that. Then we need to be thinking about the bigger chunks, what I'm noticing at the moment is a pattern in my patients where they're not getting any rest- restorative holidays, right? They might be taking a little bit here or there. And this is particularly since the pandemic, like everything's been crazy. Stress levels have been really high. I really don't believe people's nervous systems have recovered from that yet. We're still seeing the impact of that. And what we want to really be conscious of is not filling our space with everything. Yes, adventure holidays are fun and you should do them but you can't have all of your holidays that way. You know, you need to find spaces where your nervous system can decompress. And it takes usually three, four, five, even seven days sometimes for you to really come down from that stress. And I'm sure everyone here has been, hopefully been on a holiday where they've noticed that, that, you know, by the sixth or seventh day they've calmed down and then they've had to go home. Yeah, so we need to think about where do we have these big, Um, things of restoration so for me it's fasting so in February Mm. I'll go over to Bali I'll do a fast with an organization called Natural Instinct Wellbeing that I do all my fasts with Um, it's run by Kate Reardon who is also an expert on the shift with you um, in season one and two but I do that because I know I'm going to go there and I have 10 days and that's all I'm there to do I'm there to fast restore read books have massages have swims have saunas do some healing sessions, and I'm there to, to go into that deep restoration. I need that. I also need time on the beach. If I don't have one good beach holiday a year, I can really feel it. So I work hard, but I also make sure that I have these, these periods of rest. You know, it might be going away to, on the weekend and going for a swim, going jumping in the ocean, walking on the sand. Like it's, I know these things sound like really basic things, but if we don't plan them into our busy life, they just don't happen. So mm. that's my biggest one for stress. The second one is herbal medicine and adaptogens. So adaptogens are a term unique only to herbal medicine. Okay, And what it is, is herbs have these compounds in them that help us physiologically respond to stress better. So I can't take you out of your busy job or your family or the crying baby, 
But what I can do is change your physiological response to it by using herbal medicine. So these are things like the withanias, the ginsengs, the rhodiolas. There's probably a hair, maybe 10 of them that exist that we know of in mm-hmm. the world, right? But I take adaptogens every single day and without them I wouldn't be able to do what I do. You know, at the moment at least it's really intense. I'm like writing a book, doing I'm doing too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, the other one is, yes, having that space, but meditation, you know, and I know everyone bangs on about it, but, you know, I would challenge you to meet a person that hasn't pushed through that barrier and been able to include meditation practice into their life that hasn't told you that it's actually really changed them for the better and really helped to improve that. And then the last one, of course, is nutrition. You know, how do we actually have the right nutrition to be able to process things? So a really important thing to understand is stress, internal stress. There's a physiological process that happens with that. There's release of cortisol. There's neurotransmitter. There's, there's a number of different things that are happening in order for your body to not explode, to kind of keep everything under wraps. And the human body will take so much crap from us before it breaks, like a phenomenal mm-hmm. amount of crap. And uh, often it's not by the time we get to breaking point that we're like, okay, body, I'll do something for you now and your signs and symptoms are just your body trying to tell you hey I need help I need help I need help and then they'll scream but during the physiological process of stress there's a few nutrients that get really severely impacted and one of them is magnesium and this is why magnesium is probably the biggest selling supplement ever because when people are stressed they chew through their magnesium and by taking it it can really help with that you know b vitamins are also can be really depleted when we're stressed the other thing that we do sometimes as a stress response is we will numb so we'll do things like drinking alcohol or smoking mm-hmm. or eating sugar or whatever it is for you. Um, drinking alcohol to directly depletes all of the nutrients that you need to, to deal with stress, magnesium, B vitamins, vitamin C. So mm-hmm. it's it can be a bit of a, a vicious cycle where we're stressed so we don't eat the right things and then we drink a bit more and then we have a bit more sugar. But then because of all those things, we're not coping with the original stress we had. So having good support is really important in that, in that, you know, get someone that's going to keep you accountable to your diet, you know, um, whether it's a friend, a naturopath, a nutritionist, another practitioner, you just having that support is really important to be able to see those behaviors. The other thing that I would say lastly in this rant about stress is uh, have a look at what your stress responses are and use them as a barometer to know how you're going. So, for example, for me, I am a number. I come from a long line of numbers. My mother and grandmother um, were obese. My father was an alcoholic. Like, so there's all these different numbing behaviors that have been used. So I know when I'm stressed that I will drink more wine. Like if yeah. things get bad enough and it's a barometer, I'm like, oh, why do I feel like drinking wine? Oh, that's because I need to do this and deal with this. And sometimes I drink the wine and other times I'll go for a day at the beach. <laughs> um, but it's recognizing those behaviors in yourself. Yeah. Oh, like when I stop going for my morning walks, I know stuff's gotten bad. Yeah. Yeah. When I stop making my lunch and I start going into those behaviors of just buying whatever I can during the day, when that extra coffee creeps in, like, what is it for you that's going to give you that information to go, what else, what support do I need to pull in for myself right now? Mm, yeah, and that's so good to identify um, what those little triggers or our um, our like just fallback tendencies are. Like for you, it's wine. Um, mine's definitely coffee. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and when that creeps up, and what I'm letting go of, and what habits I know that I need to sort of keep continuing, so I don't default into those sort of tendencies. Yeah, um, yeah, that's so important. Um, Catherine, I just want to quickly um, change tunes for just a second, um, sort of before we wrap up. But can you just um, give a little bit of insight into gut health and neuroinflammation? And I know that you know, obviously, gut health has been sort of and it's come in and out of um kind of uh trendiness over the last sort of decade but our understanding of how obviously our gut health is affecting our brain yep. as well is really um snowballing yep i would just love your take on that as well please of course so gut health i think should be permanently trending forever um yep. because it is the foundation to everything and um as you know we did season one of the shift podcast on gut health Mm-hmm. And we chose that because we know that it's relevant to every single human, right? It's the foundation of everything. So when we look at the gut naturopathically, it's important to prevent disease in two different ways. The first one is if our gut is dysfunctional, we won't absorb nutrients. And the second one is through the modulation of the microbiome and the microbes that are in the gut. Mm-hmm. So what can happen at the gut level 
is you can have inflammation and it can happen from a number of different ways. It can happen because you're having foods that are, that are irritant to the body or that the body considers irritant, um, like a food intolerance. So we eat the food, the body goes, I don't like this, and it recruits different cells and it makes mucus and it actually tries to just protect itself. And that's the process of inflammation. That really commonly happens with things like gluten and dairy. They're hard to digest and they're just not great everyday foods for humans. So they're kind of two of the biggest ones that lead to some gut inflammation. The other one is um, when we're stressed, it directly inflames our gut and creates these inflammatory mediators and causes more leaky gut and different things. And the other one is through microbial issues. So when we have a dysbiosis, which is where the bacteria in the gut are out of balance, what ends up, what can happen is we can have more of the byproducts of them dying off the wrong type of bacteria, and that can actually leak into our bloodstream and cause inflammation. So when we have a leaky gut, we have a leaky brain. When we have an inflamed gut, we have an inflamed brain. So there's definitely a direct link there, and we know that from research. So that's not in dispute anymore so when Mm -hmm. we're looking at any type of neuroinflammation we have to look to the gut so why is neuroinflammation important neuroinflammation at the more extreme phase is going to cause brain damage and issues with brain function and we know that alzheimer and dementia are going to overtake cardiovascular disease diabetes all of that stuff as a leading cause of death in the next 15 to 20 years which is terrifying for people right Mm -hmm. and neuroinflammation plays a really big part of that neuroinflammation also plays a part in anxiety, depression, other mental health issues, things like ADHD and uh, neurodivergent brains as well don't do well with neuroinflammation. So when we're learning more about that at the moment, ADHD is kind of somewhere where I've dug into just because so many of my patients were coming up with this diagnosis and these issues and looking at the role of inflammation and nutrition in that is really interesting and cool. So we want to look at healing that gut to heal the brain. And on a very basic level, to reduce gut inflammation, we need to remove irritants that shouldn't be there. So gluten, dairy, sugar are sort of the the biggest ones. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't really advocate for a lot of the diets that are doing things like um, removing nightshades or lectins or that type of stuff, right? And we could totally do a, a whole podcast episode on that. There's a place for it here and there, but I think it's been taken out of proportion and it doesn't apply to the majority of people. This is feedback I get from my patients. Like, what about lectins? Surely I shouldn't be eating lectins. I'm like, here's a study on lectins that show that people who eat more lectins have less disease (laughs) because the food that contains lectins has all the other stuff that keeps you healthy, right? So we want to look at removing these irritants. We definitely want to have a look at the microbiome. And how do we do that? You have to do a microbiome analysis to make that happen. Um, There's lots of general labs that do it that you can, as a consumer, do it. But we do it through a couple of more practitioner-based labs because that helps us more clinically. Helping that microbiome work better is certainly going to help with inflammation at the gut level. We want to definitely be having a look at stress and what else What else is coming in there that can cause damage and cause problems for us. So healing the gut, you know, is a, a process that can take actually a number of months or if not years for people. When I first started practicing naturopathy, I would do kind of like these uh, six-week gut protocols. It would be like weed, mm-hmm. seed and feed. We're going to do two weeks of this, two weeks of this, two weeks of this. I do not do that anymore. So I will do a stool test and sometimes I'm treating people's guts for six to 12 months because I know that it's going to take a lot of time to help to what I would call massage that microbiome back into thing, make everything healthy. And But there's so many agents that can help you to do that. And healing the gut is also important for any type of pain in the body, right? It's we want to have that low inflammation. We want to be absorbing all the nutrients we need to keep regulated and have that working to the best ability that we can. And it's interesting that we're um, understanding that there's certain type of microbial species that real are really good at signaling inflammation, mm-hmm. and they do have that hormone um, signaling capacity as well. And that's that yeah. microbial endocrinology. Yeah. So they can, you know, increase your cortisol and you know put you into all of those inflammatory sort of cascades and everything else. Like it's so fascinating. And you show me a person with depression or anxiety, and I'll show you someone with gut issues. It's mm-hmm. like that's that gut brain axis in motion. It's you know, one and the same. So, um, yes, I agree, Catherine, um, gut health should always be on trend always. Um, It's funny how health, like we go through health um, trending cycles though, which is Mm. probably mostly pushed by um, just, you know, media trends. But, uh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Hey, Catherine, am I allowed to ask what's your new book on that you're writing or is it Mm. uh, top secret? It's not. Um, It's called Safe Enough to Heal. 
that's a working mm-hmm. title, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what we'll go with safe enough to heal. And what it's about is how do people le- heal on every single level, right? Three levels of healing. So the bottom level um, is they need to be safe enough in their nervous system and in their body right? So this, the bottom level of safety is purely physiological. So looking at cortisol levels alone, they're in parasympathetic nervous system, they have good quality sleep. How do they do that? The second mm-hmm. level of safety that we need to achieve is an emotional sense of safety. So this is understanding what emotions are we holding on to? How do we process emotions? Definitely looking at anxiety and why that occurs, that side of things. And the third level of safety is what I would call on more of a soul level. And this is mm-hmm. about on a spiritual level, understanding things, but it really is about as humans, our innate sense of needing to belong. Who are we yeah. in relation to the people around us? Where do I belong in my tribe and what is my purpose? And mm. it, the book definitely is geared towards women as well. So I will be sharing a lot more about my story, um, overcoming trauma and how do we as women find a sense of safety within ourselves so that we can heal on every single level. So I'm really excited about it. It's a big project. Um, and it's because it's huge. It's huge, and there's there's so much research as well that backs up a lot of these themes. So I'm really in a bit of a research phase at the moment, deep diving into that. You know, seeing what can, well, how can science kind of really mm. help people to kind of make these paradigm shifts to understand what they need to heal. Catherine, that sounds amazing. Um, when the book comes out, we will definitely get you back on and we'll um, sort of really riff on that because I think that sounds so great. Yeah. Um, just like birthing another baby. Oh, so well done. <laughs> it absolutely is, yeah. Um, Catherine, where can our listeners find more about you? Yeah, so the Shift podcast would be a good first place to start and you can get that anywhere you listen to podcasts. On Instagram, you can follow me at Catherine Maslin. That's K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E-M-A-S-L-E-N um, and also at the Shift Clinic Instagram. I'm also on TikTok more recently too, which I'm really enjoying actually. Oh, you're so brave. I, I can't do it. <laughs> oh, it's kind of fun. It's it's just been a little bit more fun. Instagram, I think okay. I like it, but um, TikTok has just got a bit of a different flavor on it. So, you know, I'm just giving giving it a red hot go on there as well. So come and say hi if you're a TikTok person. <laughs> oh, good on you. And we'll put all the links to um, where you can find Catherine, including um, the Shift podcast and the Shift clinics um, in the show notes. So just scroll down for that, guys. Um, Catherine, thanks so much for joining us sort of again <laughs> on Wellness Women Radio. Um, Catherine, we just adore you. So thanks so much for your valuable time today. Thanks for having me. It's been great. All right. So ladies, you've been listening to Wellness Women Radio. We are the Wellness Women, Dr. Andrea Huddleston and Dr. Ashley Bond. Uh, We are raising the bar for women's health. And until next week, be well. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.